Welcome to the Biz News Power Hour. I'm Michael Apple. It's Tuesday, the 22nd of February. Coming up on the show, we talk vaccines, cryptocurrency, immigration, and as always, all your international business news with our partner, the Financial Times. Let's get straight into your news headlines. RightRock believes that with every change in life comes opportunity and the markets aren't any different. The daily movement in the markets means change for us all, sometimes small, sometimes big. This daily market report is made just for you by BrightRock, the first ever needs-matched life insurance that changes as your life changes. Suspended ANC Secretary-General Ace Magashule is in court this week, alongside his co-accused for the pre-trial hearings related to the Free State asbestos scandal and a separate application to have corruption charges dropped altogether. Events in court have indicated the difficulty of converting the Zonder Commission evidence into a successful case for state capture prosecutions. State prosecutors told the court that the enormity of the case was about a corruption scandal that saw 255 million rand in public money blown on irregular contracts to audit the use of asbestos in free state housing projects. Embattled airline SAA is set to receive the next part of its multi-billion rand government bailout, with Public Enterprises Minister Pravin Gordon saying the group will get 3.5 billion rand in the coming financial year. Godan has stressed that this is not a new bailout, but part of the 14 billion rand promised by the government years ago. SAA is being taken over by equity partner Takatsu Consortium with the intent to ultimately remove its dependence on government bailouts. Despite receiving billions of rands in bailouts over the last decade, insiders say the airline is still not running profitably. South African consumers may be spared the full 20.5% electricity tariff increase from April the 1st that ESCOM has requested if, as has been suggested, the regulator adjusts the utility's approved revenue in line with the poor technical performance of its generation fleet. Energy regulator NERSA is set to decide on Thursday what ESCOM is entitled to in terms of revenue and that will form the basis upon which tariffs will be calculated. This decision is crucial in light of the depressed economy and expected spike in fuel prices early in March and rising inflation. NERSA is awaiting the results of a study by an outside consultant about the social and economic impact of the proposed revenue decision on consumers and the economy as a whole. The JC All Share Index was lower at 75.700 and in the price action, Santam and Kumba in the green. Steinhoff Process and Naspers are deep in the red the latter because Big Brother Tencent was down by more than 6% on regulatory concerns coming out of the East. Joltec Crypto Basket is 1% up on the day. In the currency markets, the rand was slightly weaker against all the major currencies, with 15 rand 16 to the dollar, 20 rand 63 to the pound, and 17 rand 17 to the euro. Gold is up over the weekend at $1,896 an ounce. A Kruger rand will cost you around 30,000 rand. Brent crude is trading at $94.10 a barrel, and the premier cryptocurrency will put you back 570,000 rand. In the financial news, Sassel reported a 20% drop in headline earnings as favorable market conditions and higher gross margins were offset by operational challenges at the group's Secunda plant. Sassel, a producer of synthetic fuels and chemicals, on Monday reported headline earnings had dropped to almost 9.5 billion rand for the six months ended in December compared with 11.85 billion reported for the comparative period in 2020. 
earnings before interest and tax was 12% higher at 24.3 billion rand. The group's gross margins had improved in line with macroeconomic conditions. Despite uncertainty, there are now clear signs of recovery to pre-pandemic levels, Sassel CEO Fleetwood Grobler said in a pre-recorded presentation. Lower production out of the South African operations was however disappointing, Grobler said. This is owed to a coal production shortfall at Sassel Mines, where a series of incidents in the final quarter of 2021 hit production targets. While delivering value to shareholders is a key focus for Sassel, the group's board decided it was not prudent to declare an interim dividend. The dividend will be restored when we are sure we can do so on a sustainable basis, said Grobler, who notes a few asset disposals are yet to be concluded while awaiting regulatory approvals. Hi, my name is Michael Apple, and I'm in discussion today with Professor Pietru Terblanche. She's the managing director of a company called Afrigen Biologics and Vaccines. It's a company based out of Cape Town. Profits, great to chat to you. Welcome. Thank you, Michael. Pleasure to be here. Now, your company's name was recently mentioned by the Director General of the World Health Organization. You were chosen to be well, let's call it a manufacturing facility as part of this technology transfer hub initiative of the WHO. Uh, there are six countries in Africa that have been chosen as these hubs. And they're basically, according to my understanding, going to be ramping up production of vaccines for the African continent. Tell me about the journey from, I think, April 2021, when the World Health Organization put out this expression of interest. Tell me about that journey and your partnership now with the World Health Organization. Michael, thank you. So, um, you know, after the realization um, in early 2021 that Africa is not going to receive the vaccine supplies that is so absolutely critically need to reach a 40, at least a 40% vaccination of the population, WHS came out very strongly with partners with a strategic initiative to establish capacity and capability in Africa and in and low and middle income countries to produce their own vaccines. The model that WHO and partners chosen is an interesting one. It's a hub and spoke model. It means that there will be a hub concentrated effort uh, which will develop technology, products, processes, standard operating procedures, full dossiers, which will then be transferred to spokes and set them up and train them to be able to make commercially viable batches of a vaccine that meets all the safety, efficacy, and of course, affordability criteria for low and middle income countries. Now, Afrigen uh, put a consortium together with Biovac here in South Africa and the South, South Africa Medical Research Council and put a proposal to WHO in April, May 2021 to become the hub for this initiative. The decision after a full due diligence and technical review was to appoint South Africa Consortium led by Afrigen to be the hub for this very, very ambitious but very critical process to enable low and middle income countries to be self-sustainable. The reason why our application was so attractive amongst the 50 plus that was received by WHO is firstly, we already had spoke Biovac to go with us to fast track the transfer to, of, commer of commercial manufacturing. 
Afrigen had a vast experience in technology transfer. We had a pipeline of vaccines in development. And most important, we had powerful partnerships in the South African national system of innovation that allows us to also develop a long-term sustainability for this initiative. In other words, that we are valid and, and relevant after COVID. Um, for WHO, for WHO, that was very important. We we to, to to invest in capacity and capabilities and for only one product is not a sustainable model. So what was very important is to establish a model that creates a platform. And that's what Afrigen is doing here. We're creating a platform which will allow us to develop processes and products beyond COVID-19. HIV, TB, Lassa fever, uh, influenza, still a very, very common disease um, across the globe. So the, the hub at Afrigen were, were, were fully established. Um, uh, we are now almost fully established, but we have gone ahead and we've now developed our own vaccine candidate in close collaboration with Wits University. The original model was that we will receive a technology transfer from either Moderna or, or BioNTech and that we will fast track development. That didn't happen. But the scientists in South Africa, with their knowledge and experience and drawing from international knowledge um, and technical advisors, were able to, within a period of two months, made a vaccine candidate, an mRNA vaccine candidate, candidate based on the Moderna sequence of 1273. Prof, if you could stop there for a second. So basically, what you're saying is Moderna was asked if they would... Um, along with this technology transfer, if they would assist in terms of the intellectual property of what goes in to their mRNA vaccine. As I understand it, Moderna, Pfizer, they weren't extremely forthcoming with uh, wanting to part with the, the intellectual property. Uh, and it was actually through, as you say, the brilliance of our scientists that we managed to... I suppose, reverse engineer the Moderna mRNA to be able to, to reproduce it. Is that correct? So, Michael, we'd like to use the term forward innovate. And the reason being, reverse engineering implies that we took the vaccine, we took the vials, we analyzed it, and we made it. Uh, that is not what we did. We took the sequence which was published by Stanford University. It's in the public domain and with the combined knowledge of, of the fantastic South African science base between Witch University um, and Afrigen, we were able to forward innovate and make vaccine at Labsco. Yes, we did not get a technology transfer from Big Pharma. We, in fact, we, we, we have not received any help. But in a way, that is a blessing in disguise because the scientists now have, have used their own knowledge base, their own um, freedom and creativity and, and, and uh, abilities to, to apply their knowledge base to make a product. And therefore, they're not in a box. We are not boxed in. We have, found, we have, we have developed processes which have some unique, uh, unique qualities and properties Although we, our aim is to make a vaccine that is non-inferior and very as close as possible to the Moderna vaccine, because that way we will, uh, we will, we will prove our capacity and capabilities. 
Now, this technology package will now be transferred to spokes. And you've heard recently on, on Friday the fantastic news that there are now uh, six spokes in Africa. Five have been announced on Friday. This is a phenomenal step forward to capacitate this continent to produce, to produce mRNA vaccines, not only COVID, other vaccines also, and to establish a platform that is future relevant. There may be a, an, a, an uninformed argument out there to say there has been such vaccine hesitancy in South Africa, you know, but between 40 and 50% of the population is is uh, has been vaccinated you know why is the who looking to bring this here but to give south africans a perspective on what's going on on the rest of the continent only only 20 percent, less than 20 percent of the people on this continent have even received a single dose is that correct prof Actually, the latest numbers, I think, were 11%. 11% of people on the continent, South Africa looks much better, and there are pockets on the continent that also is, has higher vaccination rates. But in all, 11% of people on this continent have, been, have received only one, one, one dose, one vac vaccination. We, it will be very difficult for us to fully arrest and contain this pandemic unless we globally reach at least 40% of vaccination rates. Um, and and there, there is an ecosystem around it that will support it. It's not only about manufacturing and supply. You're absolutely right. It's about advocacy. It's about uh, us informing populations. It, it is about us also positively influence populations to understand how important it is to be vaccinated. And only 1% of the vaccines that have been administered in Africa were actually manufactured in Africa. Is that correct? That's correct. Africa uses about 25% of the vaccines produced globally, but we're only producing 1% of what we need. And therefore, it is, it is time that the continent take an, a concerted effort to change those, those statistics. And as you know, the, uh, the African Union and African CDC is now starting to implement their vaccine manufacturing strategy to produce 60% of the vaccines this continent need by 2040. Um, and that, that, that strategy is, be, is bound to be implemented quite successfully. If we look at the resources and the energy that's now being put into, into implementation, I think Africa, this is the time where Africa will reach those very important goals and socioeconomically develop the sector in, on, on this continent. Prof, in terms of this latest variant, Omicron, which uh, had a lot of more mild symptoms, let's, let's say, there is a lot of vested interest from pharmaceutical companies who have spent billions on research and development. And I'm trying to play devil's advocate here. The, the Omicron variant, we are told, is sort of, it's a much milder form. It's definitely, it wasn't as deadly as, as Delta was. The need for vaccines in South Africa, are we looking at a situation where the variants are becoming milder and the need for vaccines is going to remain? At least that would be the business model that pharmaceutical companies believe in. Am I, am I wrong? 
Yeah, Michael, there's 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 a lot of complexity in 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 these in this in viral and 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 epidemiolo- epidemiology of of COVID nineteen. I think this has been a fantastic learning curve for the whole world. So Omicron is very effective but mild in symptoms, uh, and there was a hope, and there is still a hope that maybe this is the this is the variant that will put us put this pandemic into the annual influenza category. Um, that still remain that people will get annual vaccinations, um, and that is a, that is a that's a great market, and that that could bring sustainability to a sector also in Africa because we you know we can create the manufacturing sector, but we have to ensure it's sustainable. However, there is sufficient scientific evidence and fear that because there's such a large a complement of the African population not vaccinated, and because we also have a fairly large complement of the population that is immune suppressed, that we run the risk of having more and more variants. There are multiple, and there it is not impossible that the next variant may be not only very effective but also very, very uh, clinically um, dangerous, and and we don't know. Nobody can tell. No scientist, no no epidemiologist can really predict. The only thing that we do know, if we reach a certain level of vaccination for this primary sequence of this virus, we have increased protection, and there will be a lesser probability of variants re- developing that could be quite devastating to public health. Lastly, uh, Prof, what are some of the benchmarks you're looking in terms of the number of vaccines now that you have uh, have been able to, um, and the, the teams have been able to, let's call it, reproduce the Moderna mRNA? Um, you had a lot of very fantastic scientific language I'm not going to venture into, but you've been able to, to reproduce it. What are the, the figures of vaccines you're going to be looking to, to manufacture for the continent? So if you look at this model, it's a hub-and-spoke model. So Afrigen has now made this vaccine candidate at laboratory scale. We will now scale it up to 5 litres, 30 litres. Now, if you translate doses, that's a few million doses because the mRNA is such a beautiful platform. We will transfer this technology to BioVac. BioVac will have the capacity to produce 250 million doses of this vaccine. The five other spokes on the continent would have similar capacity. That gives us a billion, just over a billion doses uh, of vaccines for the African continent. So um, from, a, from, a, from a supply to and demand perspective, we would be able to supply the half, well, 60% of the needs of the African continent for COVID-19 vaccines. That, that is that is quite significant, and this could be done in three to four years. But remember, at the same time, because we created a platform, we will now start working on other vaccines. And this what is first? What is first on the agenda, there, Prof? What is the most pressing? Do you think? It's interesting. The discussions we're having tomorrow evening with with experts globally is, of course, looking at TB. Is of course looking at HIV, Ebola. Uh, even annual influenza is 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 of importance uh, to us. So we hope that we will, in the next two or three weeks, make the decision on what is the next one. Apart from Omicron, we've started uh, making a vaccine using the same platform for Omicron, but that's that's more because we wanted to 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 test the platform, but we also want a backup compound. 
a backup vaccine to, to the primary one. So we will announce in the next month what, what would be the priorities and who will be our partners because we have also created partnerships across the globe to work on improved processes, improved vaccines, better thermostability, um, lower payloads, and also then, of course, for other diseases of importance to the burden of disease on this continent. Uh, Prof. Petro Tablanche, it's a great pleasure speaking to you. Thank you for your time. Thank you very much, Michael. My name is Michael Apple. With me in studio, it's a great pleasure to have Stafford Macy. Nice to be here. Thank you for having me. Throughout your career, you've been driven, I wouldn't say by emotion, but by a gut feel. Every time you get goosebumps, you said the first time you got to the internet yeah. and the user interface, and then the second was open source software, and I suspect you're going to get to a third goosebumps yeah. moment. Yeah, the third goosebumps for me was when six, seven years ago, um, someone installed a crypto wallet for me, and I didn't understand how it worked. You went and, to learn. And I was like, what's this Bitcoin thing? Like, guys, explain it to me. I know, like, everyone's talking about it. All my engineers are speaking about it, like... What is this thing? And at the time, I'll never forget, I was at Thumbs Up and we built this little payment device and it went global and it was like one of the last... The Pebble, yeah? The Pebble, yeah, the yeah. Payment Pebble, which, which we invented. And yeah, so we were in this money space, in this exchange of value space. And take a look at the context from where I came. I had built this invention with my team. We invented this little thing called a payment pebble. You plugged it into a phone and it changed the phone into a card acceptance device. Mm. So we created secure rails of a non-secure platform to exchange keys with a backend to unlock value and exchange value over the wire with this very arcane backend, right? So if you take a look at how we did it, the payment pebble plugged into a phone. There was software on the phone. There was software and firmware and hardware and keys and crypto on that device so it could read your card so when you put your card in there it would activate and unlock the keys and do the necessary key exchange so you could do the transaction securely mm. then we'd go over the wire and then we'd connect to this pci dss mainframe backend bank right lots of stuff very secure um and all the things that get put in there to make that secure you know people process and technology that enables you to have the assurance that your bank account is there and that I can send money from Alec, from myself to Alec, and Alec to myself. That fabric is incredibly thick, complex, arcane, doesn't change often. And then suddenly someone gave me a crypto wallet. I understand my background, right? So I was the guy that had founded a company. I had these incredible engineers, and we had built incredibly arcane technology, right? From firmware, hardware, manufacturing, key exchanges, key facilities, key injection facilities. I mean, Crypto, crypto, crypto. And then suddenly here was this crypto wallet and I could send value from one person to the other without any need for any of that. Do yeah. you feel slightly conflicted no. by virtue of the fact that you sit on the board of a bank, which is essentially the middleman that is cut out by cryptocurrency and the blockchain? I think that's a strong statement. I think um, to say that a middle, the bank is the middleman that will get, get cut, cut out, I don't think so. Um, I can't speak on behalf of Discovery, and obviously I can't disclose anything within that organization, but I think banks have a role to play. I don't think, I mean, it's as, it's as wild as saying card is going to kill cash, right? So, But the biggest competitor that Visa and MasterCard and everyone else has isn't the next card company. It's not American Express, it's cash. Cash is still the fastest growing form of payment in the world. Cash-based transactions in South Africa are arguably 30 to 40 to 60 times bigger than the formal economy. 
So the bank movement of money. So, so no, I don't think crypto displaces. I think crypto gives us things that we could before never, th we never thought was imaginable is now imagined, it's now reality. And that's incredible. So, so when I got my crypto wallet for the first time, that's when I had my biggest goosebumps that I've had in my life from a technology mm -hmm. a professional perspective, right? And suddenly, yeah, I was, and I was exchanging value with another human being and there was no intermediary and there was no bank required and there was no government required and there was nothing. And it was more secure than any of the stuff that we had built. That was a mind blow, right? Because yeah. think about the context, right? Me, as this guy that built all this bank fabric, understood bank fabric extraordinarily well had deep has i have deep respect for bank fabric and here was this thing exchanging value more securely and i was like wait this guy and it took me the first time i looked at it i was like no no what, what have i no. been doing my whole life no actually i, I refused it i thought this is rubbish ah. it's like no one and then all my history kicked in because I was doing exactly what everyone was doing when I told them about the internet, what everyone was doing when I told them about open source software. When I first, for the first time, touched Bitcoin, I was like, it's rubbish, so mm -hmm. never. But then when you study it and you start to understand it, it is incredible because it's not a single goosebump moment. It is a continuous, significant amount of epiphany that hits you nonstop from the white paper all the way through to experiencing it when you actually moving value in this world it's extraordinary it's extraordinary it's to, to a point of being scary right speaking of scary is the volatility of something like bitcoin it's 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 throws tantrums almost like a toddler isn't that a scary space to be in i i, I think currencies in the world are a scary place to be and i think stock exchanges are a scary place to be in. i think the scariest place to be right now is in the traditional markets i that's much scarier than than Bitcoin, in my opinion. Um, if you take a look at the amount of dollars in circulation today, they were literally the majority of them. I mean, let me hear the stat. The majority of US dollars in circulation today were printed in the last 24 months. That's, that is not sustainable. The fact that in the early 70s, Nixon did something where he separated this global monetary thing and created a global monetary policy on the basis of the currency not being backed by, by gold created something that is the biggest mass fiction and that fiction is is meeting its reality and i think what's happened over the last 24 months is that the populace out there have undergone a mass acceleration of digitization right people that have never put their credit cards into websites to buy groceries were doing it in lockdown because they had to whether they were 70 80 years old all the way through to the youngest right so we had this mass digitization and through this mass digitization i think people have started to understand well wait a minute there's this thing out there and literally in the last 24 months let's be honest bitcoin ethereum all these other things have now hit mass headlines we're seeing big organizations moving your bottom line money into this into this asset class and they're betting on this asset class versus keeping their money in the traditional bonds or in a bank account. Because if you take a look at inflation, which is a scary thing right now because the fundamentals are so broken in our economies at the moment because of lockdowns, because of everything that's happened. And the stimulus, we call it, you know, stimulus. What is stimulus? It's central banks printing money yeah. and just increasing debt. And when we look at those debt numbers, it's not sustainable. And we were always worried about what was going to happen. And I think what's happened right now is... Is Bitcoin, and it's the answer, and it 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 it's creating a new global monetary framework for value exchange that doesn't require government. It cannot be switched off, mm. um, 
And in my opinion, putting your money in it, that's my opinion. It's not an investment advice, but putting your, it's, I don't see anywhere else that's safer. I don't. If my 85-year-old mother was watching this and she has no idea what crypto is, if I had to ask you in 30 seconds to describe to my mother what it is, go ahead. It is a place where you can put your money that has better value, better capability, and a better future than gold. Because it's got more of a utility than gold. And your 85-year-old money was based upon a piece of metal that may be difficult to mine and gain access to, arguably rare, but has no divisibility. It cannot be exchanged easily. It has been detached from currency. Um, therefore, it just is no longer applicable. It's now been replaced by a digital mechanism that not only has all of its assets in terms of, of scarcity, there will only be 21 million of them, but it also gives you the ability to program your money and to do things with your money that wasn't previously possible. Example, 85-year-old Mrs. X, you can create a will, you can take your money, you can program your money and say it will pay out to your son in this amount of time based upon these conditions. And when you sign it with those keys, no authority in the world will ever be able to undo it, not even you. And it will pay out based upon those conditions because the math will enforce it. Not a legal contract, nothing that you've signed physically. Um, and it will be more secure than any contract and it will be more verifiable than any other legal piece of paper, no matter who signed it in the entire world. Well, Stafford, this is supposed to be the starter, not the, the, the main <laughs> course. But I Lots very much look forward to having you at the, at the BNC3. And uh, thank you so much for your time today. Oh, I love it. I, I'm, it's going to be exciting because I know there's lots of leaders over there that are quite skeptical, big people with big businesses that are very much dependent on the traditional way of things. So I'm going to try and kind of just shake that cage a little bit on the day. Good to have you. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you. I'm not just what of business and I'm chatting to business tribe member Andrew Goodhead, who's had quite the adventure. You are traveling to the third business conference that starts next Tuesday. Yesterday was your first day. Tell me about it. Hi, Nadia. Um, this evening, I'm sitting in a very luxurious lodge, Braga of Lodge, just outside Sutherland. But yesterday was, was a tough one. I did 220Ks yesterday from Cape Town to just before the Tanqua. It was mainly tough due to my poor planning. Okay, but it's good that uh, happened the first a, day, so now you can <laughs> sort of reassess. Yeah, I um, I was full of the adventure and took a few detours and ended up spending a lot of time in, in farmlands trying to climb over fences. <laughs> and in the very end, my battery ran flat and I had to do a, a long push up a hill. But <laughs> there were many victories. Okay, good. The first victory was that I didn't have any mechanicals and I broke my previous record of, of having the longest time in the saddle. I was in oh, the saddle wow. for 13 and a half hours yesterday. Sure. What was your previous record? I don't know, but it was far less than that. Okay. <laughs> okay. And how fast does the e-bike go? You're traveling on a solar-powered e-bike from Cape Town to the Drakensberg in seven days. That's right. I'm on track at the moment. I saw your get-up. That is insane. I mean, the size of the solar powers are about the size of a bucky. Am I right? 
Yes, I've got two and a half square meters of, of collection. <laughs> the cool thing is that these solar panels have already been used on a solar car. It was the Bit Solar Car. So they could, oh. this is their second time traveling through the crew. Amazing. They have been far, the, these panels are traveling far further than most would, would ever travel. It must have been beautiful in the winelands. It was, it was fantastic. Seeing two um, crew cranes in sort of old wheat fields. Yeah. And I might not have seen that if I hadn't taken a detour. There we go. And the roads, how would you rate them? No potholes. When I was on the tar, I had a wide shoulder. <clears throat> Today okay. I spent about 120 k's off-road. I was traveling deep through the, through the tanker and all of that was on dirt. Okay. But the dirt was surprisingly good. And the weather, how, how does it play into the solar panels working? I mean, what if you have really bad weather one day and there's just, it's super cloudy? I would suffer drastically. Uh, the panels keep the, keep the battery charge at about 75%. So at the end of the day, I was kind of at half. The one problem is the dust from the dirt roads dirties the panels and the efficiency drops a lot. But every morning I've got a little routine to clean my panels and then okay. head off. Did you spend the night under the stars last night? I did. I didn't make it to my destination. I saw a photo of you with your socks in the air. <laughs> it looked really cool though. I had a very beautiful night under the stars oh. and I uh, gave a wine delivery to a very surprised farmer at half past nine last night when I ended the ride. I made a decision to go to the next light I found and there was an old farmer and his wife with two big dogs. Luckily, the dogs didn't bite me, but oh, no, no, he was very surprised to have a, um, <laughs> a wine delivered <laughs> at 9.30. Yeah, on a solar-powered e-bike. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. Can you listen to music when you're busy, or do you have to sort of have your wits about you? Is that a little bit dangerous, maybe? Generally, it's not advised. You should be sort of super aware of what's going around you. And I've got the whole trailer behind me. I've become accustomed to the rattle that the trailer makes. And if okay. the rattle changes pitch, I know that there's something amiss. Okay. So I like being able to hear what's, what's happening. A bolt broke today and my chain broke. Uh, both of those I managed to fix. But if I had Is that heard, what you would call a mechanical? That's what I would call a mechanical, yeah. Okay. And those are the only two I've had the whole trip. Amazing. Which is fantastic. Okay, so Sutherland tonight. How's the weather? I've heard Sutherland is the place in the country that gets the coldest, but I'm not sure if this applies to summer nights too. It gets the hottest and coldest. So during the day, it's baking, ah. and then at night, it gets quite nippy. So it's probably better that you have a bed this evening. <laughs> oh, I'm super excited. <laughs> I can imagine. And a shower. Oh, that's amazing. Okay, so where did you get your solar pa your, the solar panels? Uh, you can buy them commercially. A setup like mine would cost about or probably about 9,000 Rand. Uh, but these are quite special panels. These are okay. thin panels without a glass covering. And these ones you got from? Is SolarSaver helping you out? SolarSaver is. They're helping me out with, with the other build-up. I've got quite a few electrical components to make the solar system go together. These particular panels, I um, got them from a friend at Fitz. How fast does it go? Is there a legal limit that you're allowed to go on an e-bike? 25 kilometers per hour and that classifies the bike as like class one and that allows you to ride on the cycle lanes. This bike, I can go 32 k's an hour 
while the motor is still assisting me. After that, the motor kicks out and I have to go under my own steam. Okay, but there's no exercise involved. Oh, there's a lot of exercise. <laughs> there's a lot. <laughs> I've only ever seen one e-bike and it was Santa that came on an e-bike to visit my nephews last year. <laughs> I mean, it's a whole new world, but that is the only time like experience I have with one. So what muscles? To um, I'm towing a lot key. behind me. Okay. The, the trailer okay. is probably 60 kilograms and that includes the six bottles of wine. Of course. Um, so you have to, this is a pedal assist e-bike and uh, so you have to put energy in and then it gives you a certain amount on top of that. Oh, um, I'm getting about 300 watts extra from the motor. Okay, so tomorrow how many k's are we doing? Tomorrow's plan is 300 kilometers. It's quite a flat route. I'm not sure if I'll make it. I don't have a designated host to be at tomorrow night. So All I'll right. go as far as I can, then call it quits when the sun goes down. It's part of the, the joy of tour cycling is just going as far as you can and then you've got everything with you to, to survive for the night. Well, then I'm going to catch up with you tomorrow, whenever you get settled. Somewhere between Sutherland and Victoria West. Amazing. <laughs>
in that moment of watching the currency and feeling all the, the political pressure in South Africa, there's a lot of negativity that, you know, that is driven, I should say, not driven by the press, but amplified by social media and the press. People become emotional and dinner party talk, you know, everyone's talking about, you know, plan B, let's get out of SA. So it's certainly something people should be doing, but it's really about timing and it's about taking very considered steps in planning how you're going to either hedge yourself offshore through investment, if you're looking to relocate, these are all things that have very different implications and, and potentially very large unexpected costs if you do do it wrong. So um, investing abroad for citizenship, the door has closed on, on some countries like Cyprus? Yeah, the, the citizenship by investment industry and residency by investment industry is a very interesting one because in the South African context, South Africans, we tend to operate and earn a pretty weak currency, being the RAND. So South Africans are, are actually very cautious and quite sensitive to the pricing of assets offshore. But if you look at countries like Russia and Turkey and India, a lot of the wealthy people there earn their, their money in dollars. So what they do is they also don't have very attractive passports from a, a leisure travel and also from a business travel perspective. So. You know, it's not only South Africans who are looking to buy passports or buy residency. You, you've got all these other rather unstable countries around the world. So the trend has been a lot of unsavory wealthy people from places like Russia have been investing and buying European passports through countries like Cyprus. And from a, a money laundering and a, and a sort of a counter-terrorism perspective, banks have really tightened up globally on who's sending money and who's receiving it. And it's made it more and more difficult for people to run bad money into these programs. But historically, a lot of the programs have had quite bad reputation for letting unsavory wealthy people in the back door of Europe. Um, it is also very political. So, for instance, in 2020, October, it was Al Jazeera that, that lifted the lid on a scandal going on in Cyprus where, you know, officials were being bribed by predominantly investors from uh, Russia. And, and they were essentially buying European passports. And within a week, that program was closed down. And I don't think it will ever come back again. Then you've got, you know, you've got countries like Portugal, Malta. They, they're still running very interesting programs. And the due diligence on the investors is very strict. The source of funds. So people like ourselves who work in the space, it's, it's up to us to prove to those authorities the source of where the clients' funds come from. In the South African context, it's quite easy because South Africans can't move large amounts of capital out of the country without having a tax clearance from SARS. And generally, if you've got a, a SARS tax clearance to move your money, then the money's being taxed as legitimate money. So in our world, it's actually quite easy, but that is putting a lot of pressure on the industry as a whole. I've noticed that a lot of South Africans have arrived in the UK during lockdown. Have South Africans used lockdowns to reflect and decide this is a time to move? Absolutely. I think COVID's been a, an amazing kind of period for self-reflection. I think in the early parts of COVID, when it first happened, the entire world was in a kind of state of shock for two or three months when nobody spent money, nobody did anything, nobody made sort of far-reaching decisions. But, you know, in the time that followed, I think everybody sat down and said, what is life all about? And we've certainly seen it. An interesting observation is that we're getting more American inquiries for Americans looking to become Portuguese residents 
than we are for um, other nationalities that we typically see investigating Portugal. And it's, I think there's a sort of a sense in every country that their government has handled COVID quite badly and maybe the grass is greener on the other side. I've had the privilege of traveling a lot during COVID and every country has handled it well and badly along the way. But yes, people have, have used the, the time of COVID to reassess what, what is life about? Is this where our future is? And we see a massive pent-up demand for South Africans to leave. And I was chatting to my manager in our investment migration business the other day, and she said there's been a marked change in inquiries from people investigating a plan B as opposed to people now talking about physically leaving. And I think to an extent the riots last year have played quite a big part in that. And just highly publicised Zondo Commission where no real big hitters have gone to jail yet. I think people are quite disillusioned. Yeah, South Africans are definitely on the move at the moment. And what are the main destinations they're looking at? I think that people come in with, with a sort of a, a wide scope and they will sort of look at whatever's available. What we tend to see in the end is that people like to go to a place where English is spoken and English is understood. So really the Anglo-Saxon world, we have a business down in Melbourne in Australia, but as you know, um, New Zealand and Australia have been particularly harsh in the handling and lockdown of any foreign travel. So it's quite funny. I mean, people are now turning around saying, even if Australia would take us now, we'd never go there because they, they didn't like the way the Australian government handled it. So people have family and friends that they haven't seen for two years. Mm-hmm. Um, so there are all sorts of other little sort of uh, considerations that have crept in. But the UK, very, very popular. There's no doubt. Um, that's our biggest immigration desk, if you want to put it like that. So, you know, we handle all sorts of immigration and visa aspects to the UK, skilled visas, spousal visas, student visas. The UK is still definitely in our business number one. So we were talking about actually investment for citizenship. When it's investment just for, you know, investing in overseas properties, where are the popular places and what are your recommendations? Yeah, international property um, has been something that's been quite close to my heart for a long time. And through the investment migration business, Portugal, Malta, etc., etc., you know, I've got to work with a lot of overseas real estate uh, developers. And we do have a lot of clients who've actually invested in Portugal, for instance, where it was purely from an investment perspective. They had no need for a golden visa. But I think that if you're looking from a South African perspective, there, there are a couple of markets that we really like. Mm-hmm. Uh, we always like the UK. I just think that the UK offers you rule of law. It's a, a business and a legal system that I think we really understand. And I think the UK post-Brexit is going to do some magic stuff in the future, um, I personally believe. I think at the moment they're still having that post-divorce stress and post-COVID, but three, four, five years' time, I think the UK will be, will be sailing well. And I think that if we look at real estate long-term, as a long-term investment asset class, I think that UK real estate is always interesting. And that's both from a, a going and buying in London perspective, but also the Northern Powerhouse. There's, there's some very interesting investments up there that will tend to give a client a better yield. And we do have a, a mortgage brokerage in our wealth business in London. You know, people can put in as, as little as 30% and, and range a 70% mortgage. And interest rates are low at the moment. So actually gearing and investing in real estate in the UK can be very attractive. 
And that's certainly one market that we like. And then uh, we, we like Germany as well. We think that Germany is the leading light in the EU. It's a different currency zone. I think that the euro as a currency is, is a great currency to be invested in. Germany is always going to be, I think, for the foreseeable future, the, the engine room of the EU. And, you know, the certain cities that we've selected and found some really interesting investment stock, again, we can get um, mortgage lending for our clients. But those, those are cities where there's good growth in terms of population growth, you know, economic growth, new businesses um, moving into the areas. Post-Brexit, a lot of financial services companies are moving into certain parts of Germany. So we look for those basic fundamentals that drive a market, and then we bring that to our clients in South Africa. So those are two sort of, I think, quite high-profile areas. We're, we're looking at Greece, funny enough, at the moment, because Greece, if you invest in real estate in Greece, you can also get residency. I don't think necessarily a residency that will ever translate into citizenship mm -hmm. because it's very difficult to become Greek. But for somebody who possibly wants to go and live six months a year in, in Greece or retire there, there's some very compelling opportunities there as well. Isn't the UK market overheated at the moment, the property market? I think you have to be very careful where you invest in the UK. And Linda, I know you live there, so you're probably sort of feeling and seeing things on the ground that the average South African investor won't. Mm. Um, but I think it's like anywhere in the world. You know, I think the general sort of talk is that London's cooling down um, because I think London's probably been the property market that's been most affected by Brexit yep. because there's been sort of high-profile businesses that have moved to go and position themselves in the EU. But you, you also have to look at certain things. If you look at Unilever and Shell, for instance, They're both recently going through the process of delisting from the Amsterdam stock market moving their legal headquarters to the UK. So the UK will fight back in time and create incentives for quick corporates to either move to or remain in the UK. They're not going to just lie down and let it happen. So I think at the moment you probably pick up some good deals in London. So when the market's under pressure, it's a good time to look at investing. Mm -hmm. And then the northern cities, that's I think a lot more internal, you know, where the government has long-term incentives for British companies to try and decentralize and, and move population from the southeast corner of England, you know, further north. And, and I think that that's going to be a long-term long play as well. Yeah, and COVID and people working from home have accelerated the move to the north. Definitely, yeah. We, we as a business certainly don't advocate that you jump ship and leave South Africa, but we, we certainly do think in a global world where our our sort of stock market and the value of the South African economy is 0.001% or whatever it is, is that you've got these fantastic offshore allowances and take advantage of them and, and make some offshore investments that are solid and, and use gearing and low interest rates that you have you know, at your disposal and give us a call. We'd love to help you explore. Thank you, Andrew Risk from Sable International. Thanks very much. Today is Tuesday, February 22nd, and this is your FT News Briefing. Russia sends troops into Ukraine after recognizing two separatist regions there. Then we hear about Peloton's Project Tin Man, the company's plan to conceal rust it discovered on some of its exercise bikes. Finally, Russia could be facing sanctions for its actions over Ukraine. How could that affect gas companies and consumers? It's a big risk that Russia might respond to sanctions 
by weaponizing commodities by saying, okay, you've sanctioned us, so we're now going to cut off gas supply completely or significantly reduce it. And that would have an immediate impact on prices and drive up costs for consumers. I'm Joanna Gao, in for Mark Filipino, and here's the news you need. Russian President Vladimir Putin has ordered troops into Ukraine after recognizing two Moscow-backed separatist regions. Putin directed Russia's military into rebel-held regions of eastern Ukraine's Donbas border area on a so-called peacekeeping operation. The troops look set to remain there indefinitely under draft agreements published by the Kremlin. Putin made the decision after an angry televised speech in which he cast doubts over Ukraine's statehood and accused the West of using the country as a tool to destroy Russia. Markets responded with alarm to the day's news. Russia's MOAC stock index closed down 10.5 percent, its steepest fall since Russia seized Crimea in 2014. In September of last year, workers at Peloton's warehouses noticed something funny paint was flaking off some of their exercise bikes. It turned out that was because of rust on parts of the bike, like the inner frame of the seat and handlebars. The company decided to conceal the rust and send the bikes on to customers without telling them about the problem. The FT's Patrick McGee was first to report this plan, which was called Project Tin Man. He says the company was under pressure to put out as many bikes as possible. Peloton was up there with toilet paper early in the pandemic in terms of people panic buying a product, right? With everyone stuck at home, workout at home, connected fitness, completely boomed. And Peloton was the poster child of this whole experience. They were really struggling to get bikes to people. I mean, people were waiting four months, six months, you know, getting really frustrated with the experience. And so the idea that they found just loads of bikes that may or may not have been in condition to actually send to people, you could see why this was a real dilemma for the company. He says the company concealed the rust using something called rust converter. So you use rust converter, which according to some internal documents I obtained, forms a chemical reaction with the rust to turn it black, and then you can paint over it. So basically, as a customer, you would no longer be able to see the rust, even though it was there, which for a company that sells $2,500 bikes, even if this is purely cosmetic, I think that's quite an issue because... It's being concealed from the customer that there's already a rust problem, a quality problem with the bike. And Peloton didn't do anything to flag the issue to customers or give them a discount. Patrick says Peloton told him about 6,000 bikes were affected. The company has not publicly flagged the problem, but in a statement, it told Patrick it would replace any bikes that were affected by the rust. They portrayed it as just a cosmetic issue and one that's been resolved by sending them to specialist sites, having specialists work on the bikes, and then having a secondary checkup when they went to quote-unquote final mile warehouses. The much bigger problem is I spoke to eight employees in four different states who said that the protocols, whether they're good or bad, were not followed because they were pressured to deliver bikes because of quote-unquote unrealistic quotas. And so whatever one thinks of the protocols, these employees say they didn't matter. Patrick McGee is the FT's San Francisco correspondent. Some of the world's biggest oil companies and commodity traders could be hit hard if the West follows through with sanctions against Moscow for any further invasion of Ukraine. Here to talk more about what these sanctions could look like and who they could affect is the FT's senior energy correspondent, Tom Wilson. Hi, Tom. Hi. So do we know the specifics around these possible sanctions against Russia? No, we don't know exactly what's going to happen because the UK, the EU and the US are discussing these measures behind closed doors. 
This running assumption is that the West, and specifically the European Union, does not want direct sanctions on Russian oil and gas supply, because that risks driving up prices of, of energy, which are already at, at record levels. So instead, we think that the sanctions are likely to focus initially on the Russian financial sector, but also on a wide range of Vladimir Putin's inner circle. So which companies and traders would be affected by these sanctions? We think that because of the vastness of the Russian energy industry and the involvement of so many of Putin's allies in so many corners of that sector, that effectively anybody with extensive business interests in the Russian energy space could be affected. And now that includes European energy majors like BP and Shell, US energy giant ExxonMobil, and the large commodity traders like Glencore, Vittor, Trafigura and Gunvor. And if they don't hit exports, how could they still hurt these companies? Well, let's take an example like Shell, which controls about a third of a huge offshore gas project in Russia's Far East that is owned by Gazprom. Now, again, in order to run that project, um, Shell is forced to engage with a whole series of different uh, contractors and suppliers to that project. And immediately, the sanctions were put on different individuals and players within the Russian energy space. And Shell would need to review those sanctions and figure out whether any of those people or any of those entities appeared within the operating structure of that project and therefore whether continuing to engage in that project would be a violation of sanctions. And looking in the past, how have past sanctions impacted gas companies in Russia? This is an important point because it goes back to 2014 when the U.S. first imposed sanctions on Russia. That was the Russia's annexation of Crimea. At that point, it placed Rosneft under sanctions and Rosneft remains under sanctions today. And the intention was to ensure that Rosneft could continue to supply oil and gas, but to use the sanctions to stymie Rosneft's growth. And it did that by two things. The sanctions denied Rosneft access to financing, or to Western financing, and specifically it was financing with a maturity longer than 90 days, so long-term debt, and that it would need to help fund capital-intensive projects. And secondly, it blocked Rosneft's access to personnel and technology needed for specific types of exploration activities. So that was actually the first time that the US government had specifically tailored sanctions to try and ensure that supply could continue. And most experts think we're going to see, at least in the first instance, a similar approach. And is there any chance that making it harder for these companies to operate in Russia actually does hurt Western consumers? So if we do see a big packet of sanctions um, on Russia, I would expect oil and gas prices to spike immediately. Now, if there is no direct impact on energy supply, then I would expect prices to come back down. But there's two potential outcomes after that. We're hearing that the US would, could potentially follow a first round of sanctions with the second and third round sanctions, which could be more punitive. And then secondly, there's a big risk that Russia might respond to sanctions by weaponizing commodities by saying, OK, you've sanctioned us, so we're now going to cut off gas supply completely or significantly reduce it. And that would have an immediate impact on prices and drive up costs for consumers. Tom Wilson is the FT's senior energy correspondent. Thanks, Tom. Thanks very much. And before we go, Carl Icahn has launched an unusual board fight at McDonald's. The activist investor is demanding the company change the way its suppliers treat pigs. 
Icon wants McDonald's to require that all its U.S. pork suppliers end the practice of keeping pregnant pigs confined in small crates. The company says it expects to be about 90% of the way there by the end of the year and to completely eliminate the practice from its supply chain by the end of 2024. But McDonald's said it would be impossible to fulfill Icon's request to end the practice now. In a recent statement, McDonald's said Icon had nominated two board directors as part of a campaign related to the issue. Well, quite a show we've had for you this evening. We look forward to being back in your company again. Same time, same place tomorrow. Until then, cheerio. You've been listening to the Power Hour brought to you by the team at Biz News.